As we continue here in 1 John, uh, these verses that we just uh, heard, read to us, the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, I think some questions that we might have when reading John's words are things like, can I lose my fellowship with God? How often do I have to confess my sins and which ones do I have to confess? And did Jesus' death pay for everyone's salvation? I think those are questions that we might have from these verses that we just heard. But despite our curiosity, I think we saw last week John's main focus is what chapter 5 verse 13 says, which is that you may know that you have eternal life, and then connected with that, that our joy might be complete, that you might have fellowship, that you might not sin, as we see from chapters 1 and 2. The specific point that he makes in this section is this, fellowship makes us deal with sin through Jesus' work. Fellowship makes us deal with sin through Jesus' work. Fellowship, I would say, first of all, is the relationship that we have with God and thus with other believers. Fellowship is the relationship we have with God and thus with other believers. Before we get into verses 5 through 7, let's talk a little bit more about fellowship. I think we we tend to use fellowship kind of loosely and maybe a fuzzy way today. We think of eating together as fellowship or just even just being in the same place. Hey, there's a fellowship at so-and-so's house. Well, why is it a fellowship? Because we're all at the same house. Why is it a fellowship? Because there's food involved. Uh, Or we use fellowship to describe a kind of subjective feeling we have about our relationship with God. Do you have fellowship with God? Well, yes. Well, how do you know? Because I feel close to God today. And then another day, for whatever reason, you don't feel close to God. Do you have fellowship with God? Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. I found uh, Jerry Bridges' description of fellowship in a book. It's had a couple of different titles. The one I had on my shelf titled The Crisis of Caring to be helpful. He describes it this way. Koinonia, which is the Greek word that's translated here, fellowship, is used in the New Testament to express four different but related dimensions of this idea. Community relationship, partnership, communion, sharing material possessions. The first two, partnership and community relationship, are dimensions of fellowship as sharing together in something, The second two, communion or sharing material possessions as sharing with one another. It is because we share together a common life in Christ that we are called on to share with one another whatever we have, both spiritual and material resources. I think it's important to note to the extent that he says we share a common life in Christ, John's concern is that you would know that you have the life of Christ. So when he says, do you have fellowship with God? He's also saying, do you have eternal life? He's saying, do you belong to God as one of his people? He's saying, as he says in John 15, are you one of the branches connected to the vine? These are different ways of saying the same thing. What is an example of these four different aspects of this word that's often translated fellowship? First of all, community relationship is shown, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1.9. Paul says there, for God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul and the Corinthians were in a community relationship with each other and with God. An example of partnership is when Paul talks to the Philippian church and talks about their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul and the Philippians were partnering together in gospel ministry. 
Communion is seen in Acts 2.42. And we usually think of communion as the act of remembering Jesus' death. But I would argue there's an aspect of communion that is sharing together as God's people. I think we see this in the early church in the meal that they would have before they remembered Christ's death. And uh, Acts 2.42 says it this way, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the breaking of bread could either have been the meal before the Lord's table or the Lord's table itself. The early church had communion with each other through regular contact. And then the last of the four ideas, sharing material possessions, is found in Hebrews 13, verse 16, which urges us, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. In the context of Hebrews 13, churches ministered to persecuted believers by sharing food and other needed resources, particularly with those in prison. So then the question comes for us in 1 John, is fellowship used to describe the fact of a relationship between us and God, between us and other people, or is John talking about activities that happen because that relationship exists? I would argue John is using the word fellowship in 1 John 1, 3 that we looked at last week, and then here, verses 6 and 7, in the sense of there being a fact of a relationship between God and his people and among his people. There is a life-giving connection between God and his people that they all share in. Let's see how the passage explains that more. Keep in mind, several times in the section we're looking at this morning, John starts from uh, the way that we live and works backward to what it means about our walk with God. So he starts out by saying essentially in verse 5 that God is holy. When he says God is light and he contrasts it with darkness, and then in the next little section, verses 8 through 10, he talks about the contrast between sin and righteousness. He's using light as a picture of God's holiness or righteousness and darkness as a picture of sin and that which is contrary to God. So in verse 5, he's essentially saying, God is holy. There is no sin in God. The apostles proclaim this message as from God himself. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. And what were they saying? God has no sin. We saw this a little bit in the Sunday school hour. God's not a man that she, he should lie. Um, God is not uh, a being who um, goes back on his word, who um, does things in an unjust way. God has no sin. God is holy. Because that is true, then verse 6 says, and verse 7, we cannot claim a relationship with a holy God while living in sin. So verse 6, if we say we have a relationship with God, and I'm saying fellowship equals relationship here, if we say that we have a relationship with God, but walk in darkness, live in sin, practice sin habitually, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if we say we have a relationship, but we practice sin, we are lying. We're lying to other people, and we're lying to ourselves. We'll see that idea again in verse 8. In contrast, if we walk in holiness as God does, we have a relationship with God's people because Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. So if we say we have a relationship with God but live in sin, we're lying. But if we walk in the light, if we live in holiness as He is in the light, we have a relationship with each other because, or and, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
Ephesians 2 illustrates it this way. Why is there a connection between Jews and Gentiles when they were formerly enemies? Because both of them are connected to God, and in their connection to God, they're also connected to each other. So fellowship has a horizontal and a vertical aspect to it, but it's still a function of that same life-giving connection. And um, sometimes we want to sort of divide between those two, fellowship with one another and fellowship with God, but it's, it's better to think of it the way that John illustrated it in John 15. If you have an apple tree, the branches of the apple tree are connected to each other to the extent they're connected to the trunk of the apple tree, right? We don't necessarily think about the fact that the branches are connected with each other, but they are because they're all part of the same tree. To the extent that Jesus is the trunk, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, we are the, the extensions off of that main thing that gives life to the living thing, then we are also connected with each other through our connection with God. When we read these verses, especially alongside verse 3, we want John to answer questions for us like, can I lose fellowship with God? And I'll talk about that at the end. But that's not the first and main thing that he's doing. He's instead, I think, wanting us to ask, do you have fellowship with God and his people? We want to say, can I lose it? He says, do you have it? How can we know if we have fellowship with God? The test that he lays out is, do you live in sin or live in holiness? What is the pattern of your life? And he doesn't get into a percentage. He doesn't say, are you good 90% of the time? He doesn't say, are you good 50% of the time? He just says, what's the pattern of your life? Are you walking in sin or are you walking in righteousness? That is a clue. That is a test. That's a way to evaluate whether or not you have this relationship with God and his people. And the great thing about that is it removes sort of the subjectivity of it because we could say, well, I don't feel like I have a connection with God or with his people. That's not what John says we should ask ourselves. Not how do I feel about it. It's what is actually true about the pattern of our lives. Do I walk in sin? Do I walk in holiness? In connection with that, verses 8 through 10, fellowship makes us deal with sin. Fellowship makes us deal with sin. As we saw from the end of Ezra a few weeks back, we often want to skip over sin and not deal with it because it's messy and hard and shameful, but our fellowship with God and fellow believers means that we have to repent. We have to acknowledge the reality that we sin. We see this in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, if we say that we have not sinned, what is true? Saying we have no sin means we're lying to ourselves. It says we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If I say I don't sin, everybody else might sin, but I don't sin. God says that's a lie. And if you tell it to yourself often enough, you might believe it, but it doesn't make it true. And furthermore, if you continue to maintain that you have not sinned, you make God a liar and show that his word is not in you. And so this is a very serious thing. We have to acknowledge that we sin. We have to then confess our sins. If we confess what is true, God forgives and cleanses us because he is faithful. The issue is not God's faithfulness, but our obedience to God's means of forgiveness. 
and again, I think the question we usually want answered from these verses, and we'll go more into this a little bit later, is how often do I have to confess my sins? Do I have to confess all of them at the point of salvation? Do I have to confess them after the point of salvation? Do I have to confess every last one of them? What if I forget one? All of those kinds of related questions. I think that that is similar to Peter's question, how many times do I have to forgive someone who sinned against me? In Matthew 18, Jesus' response to Peter showed that our focus shouldn't be on the specific number of times forgiven. I would argue similarly, our focus shouldn't be on the number of confessions, but that we are confessing because we have a relationship. So, uh, we'll talk more about that. Uh, there's also the reality that there is a confession that is the point at which we enter into that relationship with God and others, right? But there is an ongoing pattern of dealing with sin because of what is taking place. And I think part of the reason that that's important is it's said in the context of all the things John is saying. How can you, as someone who is professing a walk with God, know that you, in fact, have that real and genuine walk with God. Are you dealing with sin? Fellowship means that you deal with sin. Perhaps before we go further, we need to ask, how are those sins forgiven in the first place? How are they forgiven at any point afterward? And that brings us to the third point. Dealing with sin is only possible through Jesus' work. Dealing with sin is only possible through Jesus' work. Chapter 2, verse 1, makes it clear that God does not want you to sin. John admonishes them as a father. I write these things so that you may not sin. He addresses his audience as little children. He's got fatherly concern for them. These are people that he has preached the gospel to, or people that those that he has taught have preached the gospel to. And so he's coming as a fatherly, as a grandfatherly figure, and saying, I'm concerned for your souls that you do not sin, because God doesn't want you to. Uh, he writes First John, and specifically these truths, so that you may not sin. There is a goal that to the extent that we realize these truths, the amount of sin that takes place is decreased. We would argue from other passages that it never fully goes away in this life, and also that we can't redefine it so that it seems less bad than it is. But the goal is that we don't sin. It's a, it's a work in progress until we reach heaven until we're in God's presence, but the goal is that we do not sin. When you do sin, Jesus' work is the solution. We see this at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Notice how Jesus, or John starts with Jesus' present ministry and then works backwards. Jesus right now is the advocate before God the Father. He is the helper. Technically, it's the same word that's used here as when he says, I will send you another helper uh, in John 14, 26. He is the first helper, even as the Spirit is another helper for those who are God's people. In what way is Jesus the helper, the advocate, the go-between? He intercedes between God and men. 1 Timothy 2.5 is a verse that we are probably very familiar with. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the one who is perfectly equipped and constantly ready to go between God and men. We see examples of this same kind of intercession of coming between God and men uh, in the Old Testament. There are various figures that anticipated the work of Christ. 
Abraham intercedes with God on behalf of Sodom and the city of Sodom, but particularly his nephew Lot in the book of Genesis. If there are this many righteous, if there are this many righteous, God spare them, right? So Abraham intercedes. Moses intercedes for the people when they have sinned, uh, when they are worshiping the golden calves around the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments. Moses intercedes for the people. Others intercede for the people all throughout the history of God's, of God's people. And Jesus is the greatest and the final and the full, full example of one who intercedes an advocate before um, God for his people. Uh, there's a song that we occasionally sing that says, um, that talks about when Satan accuses us before God the Father. What answer is there? Jesus says, I have paid for that sin. And so, uh, in another of the older hymns, the spirit answers to the blood, tells me I am born of God. And that, I think, is a quote from later in 1 John. But that same kind of idea, on the basis of what Jesus has done, he goes between God and men on behalf of God's people because of his work. And then we see, secondly, that he is the righteous one. Who is this advocate? Jesus Christ the righteous. And I think we tend to skip over that a lot. We say, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, great. Move on to the next phrase. Think about what those words mean. Jesus means the Lord saves. It's very close related to the Old Testament word Joshua, the name, name Joshua. The Lord saves. Christ, he's the anointed one that was prophesied to deal with sin, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, prophesied by Isaiah and others as a picture for God's people. And so we look through all these things and we see Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah anointed by God. These roles are only possible for him because he is righteous where people are not. If he were not righteous, he couldn't be the Savior. If he were not righteous, he couldn't be the anointed one of God. And we see this connection in Romans chapter 3 laid out very clearly. The first Basically, half of Romans 3 is everyone has sinned. Everyone has sinned in lots of different ways. Everyone has sinned willingly and extensively and continually. And no one wants to follow after God. And people have behaved wickedly. And no one's searching after God. And just all these different descriptions tied in with some things from the Psalms and other places in the Scripture where Paul just sort of lays out everybody is a sinner. But then at the end of Romans 3, what does he say? God has dealt with that sin through the ministry of Jesus Christ who is righteous, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. So Jesus is the advocate with the Father. Jesus is the righteous one. And then you take even a step further back. He is the propitiation for the world. Propitiation is a word that's used rarely in the New Testament, only four times, I believe, there's words from the same root connected with the idea of mercy that show up slightly more often, but it's still not a very common word in the New Testament. Uh, Romans 3 that I just alluded to, uh, it's translated or potentially should be translated as mercy seat. So Romans 3.25, God displayed him publicly as a mercy seat in his blood through faith. It's because it ties back into the Old Testament. 
Uh, we see in Psalm 85, verses 10 through 11, Mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Way back in Exodus, chapter 25, verses 17 to 22, God gave them instructions. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold as a cover over the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it has the cherubim on the top of it, and here's how their wings are to be. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. That doesn't stop there. They didn't just build it, set it on top of the ark of the covenant, and then nothing ever happened with it again. In Leviticus chapter 16 we see instructions for the Day of Atonement. And in that passage, the priest was to perform rituals at the mercy seat. He was supposed to wash and put on special clothing and uh, bring goats for a sin offering and a burnt offering. And then he's to offer a bull of a sin offering. And then he's to take incense and bring it inside the veil. He's supposed to take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat seven times. And verse 16 of Leviticus 16 is very important. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 25 picks up this same idea of propitiation in which Jesus, as high priest, makes atonement for the sins of the people. And so we see this in Hebrews chapter... I'm sorry, I copied the, the reference from um, Romans. It's actually 2.17. He had to make, be made like his brethren in all things, Hebrews 2.17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Leviticus based on Exodus, the thing that was built in Exodus, the ritual that was carried out in Leviticus, Hebrews describes Jesus as the high priest who performs this ritual. And yet John, in 1 John, uses the idea here in verse 2, and also chapter 4, verse 10, to say that not only is Jesus the one who performs the ritual, but he is also the sacrifice that is being, whose blood is being shed in the, in the ritual. His main focus seems to be the fact of Jesus being God's way of salvation for the world. And so as we look down through these ideas, we have the idea that fellowship is the relationship that we have with God and therefore with his people, that fellowship makes us deal with sin, and that dealing with sin is only possible through Jesus' work. What about the questions I raised at the beginning? The questions we usually ask are, can I lose my fellowship with God? How often do I have to confess my sins? Did Jesus' death pay for everyone's salvation? John's main focus is on this idea that I mentioned to you. Fellowship makes us deal with sin through Jesus' work. But since I raised those other questions, let me address them briefly. Can you lose your fellowship with God? If fellowship means your relationship with God and other Christians... Not how we feel toward God, not something that we do, then the question is really whether salvation can be lost. And I would say this 
The Bible makes it very clear that you can't lose your relationship with God accidentally. It's not like I went to do a project and I misplaced a tool and where did I put it? It's not something that just happens. There are passages or examples that make us wonder about whether fellowship or salvation can be lost, but they describe long-standing patterns of disobedience. For example, Israel saw God's mighty power in Egypt, and then most of them showed unbelief in the wilderness. We could argue, well, not all of them were actually following God to begin with, so they didn't lose something that they never had. And I understand we could say that. There's also passages that describe deliberate rejection of God after a time of apparently following Him. Hebrews gives warnings about those who participate in God's work and then reject Jesus Himself in Hebrews uh, 2 and 6 and I think 10. Demas is a specific example that really makes us pause and say, what does this mean when it says, Paul says, he has forsaken me having loved this present world. Here's someone who in one letter is described as a fellow worker of Paul involved in gospel ministry and then later on seems to have nothing to do with Paul. It's a sober warning that makes us wonder, could this happen to me? Now, I believe that turning away from God and never repenting shows that you didn't have a relationship with God. When I say never repenting, like there could be someone who's not walking with God for a decent period of time and then turns back in the course of their lives. But if someone appears to follow God, turns away from that, never comes back, what is the reasonable conclusion about their lives? They, there should be no confidence that they have a relationship with God. The great danger, I think, is if we say that, what I just said, if you turn away from God and don't repent, you didn't have a relationship with God, it's easy for us to think that we have a relationship with God when we don't. So that goes back to John's simple test. Do you live in sin? If I live in sin, but I say I know God, I'm lying. John continues by making it clear he's not arguing for some kind of Christian perfectionism. What I mean by that is the idea that I can get to a point where I no longer intentionally or consciously sin. We can't say in this life, I have no sin, because the only way we say that is if we redefine sin. So God never makes a, distinguish between, a distinguishing between intentional sin and unintentional sin, in the sense that unintentional sin has no consequence and intentional sin has lots of consequences. Now, is there a, are there verses that give us the impression that God is, I wouldn't say more understanding, but that there is more patience, more opportunity for repent for ignorant sins? Yes, there are several examples of that, Acts 17 and other places. But that doesn't mean that God said, well, it's just all okay. It means that if we sin knowingly, we are more accountable than people who sin unintentionally, but all sin condemns us in God's sight. Even after beginning to walk with Jesus, everyone still sins, so the solution is to agree with God about that sin as we become aware of it and to deal with it with God and others. And that's what that word confess means. Agreeing with God that something is sin and that we need to take care of it. Which then leads us to the other question. Do you need to keep confessing your sin over and over? Because if God knows everything, and if God knows your sin as part of everything, then do you really have to keep confessing it over and over if it's already been dealt with in what Jesus did? 
let me say a couple of things about this. I don't believe that confession is meant to be exhaustive. Why? Well, for one thing, we're forgetful and don't remember every last sin. Confession deals primarily, if not perhaps exclusively, with sins that we're aware of. This should be obvious, but if you don't know about a sin, you can't confess it, or at least you're not going to, right? So if I do something, but no one ever says that was a sin, and I never, I never realized that it was a sin, I'm not going to confess it, right? I'd base this on Matthew 5, where Jesus says, if you remember someone has something against you, there's a sin that you have done something wrong towards someone else, go, deal with that, and so on that basis... We should confess to people the sins we have committed against them as often as we become aware of those sins. Psalm 32, where David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba and all the subsequent sins, makes it clear we're also to confess to God. How do we do this? Through the mediating ministry of Jesus, not through a human priest or any other person. Jesus Christ is the advocate. We are not obligated to go to some representative of Jesus to confess our sins. We can take them directly to God. Going back a little bit further to do you have to confess your sins at the point of salvation, I think the Bible would make it clear you have to recognize that you're a sinner apart from God's work. And we do see people confessing their sins when they came to be baptized by John the Baptist and once they had believed the gospel in Corinth. Uh, Mark 1.5 is the John the Baptist example. Acts 19.18 is the one in Corinth. But going back to what I said a minute ago, if you confess that you were a sinner when you started trusting Jesus, but didn't confess every last sin you could think of, I would say that you're still a Christian. Putting off sin and putting on holiness is a lifelong process. It doesn't get all finished in a single moment. Going back to what I said a moment ago, you're not going to remember every last sin at the point when you first start trusting Jesus. And God doesn't require you to recite all of your sins so that they can individually be allocated properly and dealt with. I might even point this out. Romans 10 would tend to make us think the more important thing at the point of salvation is to confess what we believe about Jesus as Lord. John picks up on this point later in his book as well. True believers, 1 John 2.23, confess the Son and thus have the Father. They confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, 1 John 4.2, and confess that Jesus is the Son of God, 1 John 4.15. So of John's uses of the word confess, even in this book, more of them are about confessing who Jesus is and our belief in him than they are about confessing individual specific sins. So God is holy. You're a sinner. Jesus paid for sin. You believe in Jesus as God's only way of salvation. Then you confess your sin along the way because you care about the relationship that you have with God. Not to, and this is very important, not to maintain that relationship or to manipulate God into still loving you. The maintain that relationship idea is in contrast to Catholicism and other groups that say, if you don't make regular confession, I think the current standard is once a year, then you might not be in right standing with God. You're not going to make it to heaven. The so that God will still love me idea is more popular in professing evangelical Christianity. If I don't confess this sin, God's going to be mad at me and things aren't going to be right. And again, I think this comes down to this idea uh, that, that flows out of the idea of 
I, my salvation is mostly dependent on me. In other words, if I don't keep doing these things to make certain that it's still there, it's not going to be there. Now, there is an important reality that what I've said throughout the whole message, we have to deal with sin because we have the relationship. But the motivation is not because we will lose the relationship. The motivation is not because we'll even lose God's blessing or favor or all the other ways we kind of talk about it. Because if the relationship is real, it exists because of things that are... We couldn't create them in the first place and we can't sustain them by our power along the way. I think a big part of when we look at 1 John compared to some of the other things we see in the New Testament is that many things about the Christian life are finished yet ongoing. They're completed yet requiring more work depending on your perspective. From one perspective, as we'd see in the book of Ephesians, you and I are seated with God in eternity, free from sin, sharing in the spillover of God's glory for all of eternity. There is a certainty to the eternal standing of God's people in God's presence. And yet, from the perspective of this moment on our day-to-day experience, we are, are, or at least should be, locked in a battle to the death with the remnants of sin in our lives. We call that sanctification. In 1 John 1, 8 through 10, I think John is focused more on our battle to the death against sin and what that means about our standing before God. This battle starts when we trust Jesus, but it's not over until we meet God face to face. And so even though dealing with sin is an ongoing process, experientially, we should never forget it's always on the basis of the once-for-all work that Jesus did. Jesus died once. Forgiveness was accomplished once. Every time we confess and deal with sin with other people and with God, it's like a shortcut pointing back to that one thing Jesus did for all time. Which leads to the last question, what did Jesus' death actually accomplish? If you're asking, did Jesus die for the elect or for all people? I would refer you to Louis Burkhoff's discussion of limited atonement in his systematic theology. It's on the shelf in the fellowship hall. Whether you agree with him or not, he did a really good job laying out the question and a lot of passages that would be worth studying out. I want us to answer the question, though, not from a systematic theology kind of perspective, but from John's gospel. When John talks about the world and about salvation, he does so optimistically. His focus throughout his gospel is that Jesus is the Savior for everybody, not just for the Jews. Uh, John 12 is a good example of this. A crowd of Greeks and Jews were listening to Jesus teach, and Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And then a little bit later, he says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Yet if someone rejected his words, what does he say? The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Taking those things together, it's clear, and if you read the rest of John's gospel, you'll see this as well. John was not teaching universalism. Everyone reaches some kind of God in the end. 
He's also not teaching so-called Christian universalism, which the universalists did before they were absorbed into Unitarianism. Instead, John taught clearly that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but he is the way for everybody, not just a small group. In 1 John 2.2, however the mystery of the atonement works, John speaks positively of the fact that not all who would be saved through Jesus' work had yet been saved, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So don't give up quickly and limit God's power to save far more people than you think. But also remember that Jesus is the only way for anybody who is saved, so we need to go tell them about who he is. Returning to the main point of the passage one last time. Your relationship with God and his people means that you have to deal with sin. In fact, if you are dealing with sin, it is an evidence that that relationship exists. But you and I only deal with sin by means of the work Jesus accomplished long ago through relationship with a living Savior who stands before God for you. Fellowship makes us deal with sin through Jesus' work. Are you dealing with sin? That's the question God wants us to ask ourselves. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these truths from your word, we see um, many things, many things that maybe cause us to have various questions. But the most important question I think we can ask from this passage is, are we dealing with sin? Because that shows if our profession of a relationship with you is true. It shows whether our claim of fellowship with your people is true. It shows whether we're in the habit of uh, confessing sin. And it shows whether we recognize that it's only through Jesus' work. Because if we say everything's fine between me and God, but we live in sin, it's not fine between me and God. We say everything's fine between me and God, but I never admit when I do something wrong and acknowledge it again. Not that you need us to acknowledge it because it somehow does something for you, but we acknowledge it because it draws us back to that relationship that we have with you and to the work that you've done on our behalf and in agreement with what your word has said about sin. Because if we are not in the process of regularly admitting it and turning away from it, we start to believe that it's okay. And Lord, when it comes to the fact of this great work that Jesus has done on our behalf, I pray that you would help us to rest in his ministry as our advocate, that we don't have to somehow overcome feelings of guilt and insufficiency and inadequacy to deal with our sin because we were never able to do it in the first place. But Jesus did and can and has, and if we're believing in him, that's effective on our behalf. Because he's the righteous one, not us. He's the advocate, not us. He's the sacrifice, not us. And so, Father, help us never to lose sight of those truths. Uh, It's easy for us to think that the gospel is something we need so that we can pray a prayer and start being a Christian and that we never need the gospel again. But as John reminds us, even in understanding what our relationship is supposed to look like on a day-to-day basis, we have to keep coming back to these core truths of the gospel that Jesus is the sacrifice, that Jesus is the righteous one, the Savior, the anointed one of God. Because of that, he continues in his work today. And if we are in him, we have an ongoing relationship with a living Savior, not a long-ago decision of something to do with a God who died even further ago 
and has no bearing on our day-to-day lives. Lord, that's not the New Testament picture at all. Help us not to give in to that view. Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep all of these biblical truths in the proper balance and, um, and to know for sure, as John's goal was, that we belong to you and to strive, as John's goal also was, that we would not sin. Because if we have seen who Jesus is, if we have seen the work that you have done, we have no excuse to keep on sinning. We have no excuse to turn aside from what you have done. And so when we are tempted to, by Satan, by the old habits that plague us, by something in the world around us, to turn away and say, sin is no big deal. Help us to remember what Jesus has done. To turn to you, to cling to you, realizing that in the end, you're the one that's making us holy and you're the one who is bringing us home. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.